When you grow up in poverty, you don't take chances. You go the safe route, you go to college, get a job, work 30 years, retire. And in Indianapolis, that's kind of been the mode in our black communities, right? People just haven't taken chances. So the entrepreneurial mindset, the entrepreneurial spirit that I think needs to be unleashed in this city, the way we embrace innovation, just think differently about how we solve problems, the way we come together to do it. Welcome to Off the Record, a podcast featuring leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, which publishes the Indiana 250, a list of the most influential business people in the state. Today, I'm joined by Emil Ekior, CEO of InnoPower, an Indianapolis nonprofit that supports innovation and economic development in minority communities. Emil left his family in Lagos, Nigeria at age 15 to pursue his dreams in America. He lived with the host family in Daytona Beach, Florida, and played basketball, soccer, and football in high school, and received a scholarship to play football at the University of Central Florida. Emil went on to play football professionally with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Atlanta Falcons, Oakland Raiders, and our Indianapolis Colts. His lone season with the Colts was in 1998, the same year Peyton Manning was drafted. After retiring from the NFL, Emil started several businesses, including Enabec Solutions, which worked with companies in both the U.S. and Nigeria. He served as National Executive Director of the GEO Foundation, a nonprofit focused on building charter schools, and the president of the Indianapolis chapter of the Indiana Black Expo. Today, as founder and CEO of InnoPower, Emil is working to create more opportunities and economic development in black communities here in Indiana, as well as sub-Saharan Africa. Emil, welcome to Off the Record Podcast. I'm so glad to have you as my guest. Thank you for having me, Nate. You made me sound really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. Emil, you grew up in Nigeria. What was it like growing up there, and, and when did you decide you wanted to find and pursue a life outside of Nigeria? If you've never been to Nigeria, there's no place like Nigeria. There's no place like Lagos, Nigeria. Nigeria is the largest population of black people in the world with over 175 million that we can count. Lagos is probably one of the most popular cities in the world with over 15 million people in Lagos. So one in three Nigerians speak a, a different language. There are over 250 ethnic groups in Nigeria. So you learn to respect everybody <laughs> and, and learn to live with everybody, right? Because everyone has different beliefs. But I'm not sure I made the decision to come to the U.S. My parents made the decision for Did me they? to come to the U.S. At the time in Nigeria, the economy was going bad. The military had just taken over. So my father felt, you know, it was time for me to pursue opportunities and come to the U.S. to do that. And um, I remember when they told me, you know, obviously I have seven sisters and two brothers. I was sad. I was leaving. But I remember walking out the room to my boys and saying, yes, you know, I'm coming to America. Like, in 10 years, I'm sending for all of you. You guys are coming to join me. So it was a sad day, but it was it was a very exciting day for, for me personally just because of um, all the opportunities that exist here in the U.S. And uh, you said you've got a big family, seven sisters, two brothers. Did some of your siblings also end up uh, coming to America, or do you have a lot of family still in Nigeria? No, most of my siblings end up coming here to pursue. Once I got here and got settled in, my brother came in. I have a brother who graduated from the DeVos Business School in um, Orlando, University of Central Florida. I have two sisters that graduated from Columbia. I have a sister that is a Harvard Law graduate. I have another sister who's a Stanford fellow. So my entire family, not all of us, but majority of us end up coming to the U.S. And, um, 
you know, pursuing opportunities here once I came and got settled in. That's an amazing story of uh, success and fortitude. And, uh, and obviously, your parents had a huge impact on you and, and all of your siblings. Pretty amazing. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. So I've got to imagine just the sheer picking up and leaving home, that process requires grit and sheer determination, moving to a new country, going undrafted after a very successful college football career, again, shows grit and determination. Where did that sheer grit and determination and uh, just get the job done come from? So when I came to the U.S., funny enough, I could tell the story today and laugh about it. I came on a six-month visa. So after six months, I was basically illegal at 15 years old. So the grit and determination came from you didn't have any other choice, right? <laughs> right. You, you had to make it, and the choice wasn't going back. So um, whatever I had to do, I had to do to just make it here and be successful. And there was no doubt in my mind. Coming here because I felt that there was so much opportunity. You know, one of the things I say today is when you wake up every morning in this country feeling like opportunities exist, just the dopamine of the pursuit, right, makes life so much different. But when you wake up feeling that opportunities don't exist, then you might as well just leave this country and go somewhere else because life becomes so much more difficult. So I came here understanding that there was opportunity here, and it was just always one class away, one relationship away, one deal away from making it. So it made things a lot easier just because I felt like, you know, there was a chance to make it here. It's amazing. I've traveled the world. I've had the fortunate opportunity to do that. And that's one of the things that always hits me is that uh, while we have our challenges in America, we also have so much opportunity, more than I would say a lot of countries offer. And uh, sometimes we forget that. But your story, and often it, it's an immigrant story that shows just what opportunities exist here. And it's usually, you probably know this, most of the, or a lot of the uh, startups in this country and the innovation in this country comes from immigrants. And, uh, and your story definitely uh, is similar to that effort. Tell me a little bit about going undrafted. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of great successful stories in sports in general about people, you know, not being picked initially, but then uh, just through grit and determination, make it. How did that go? And, and tell us a little bit about what drove you to, to make it to the NFL. First of all, in high school, I remember after my junior year, friends of mine convinced me to play football. I had never played. And after my junior year, I was just so bad, right? I couldn't put on my pads. Didn't know anything about the game. But I went to a pretty good Catholic high school in Daytona Beach and just worked hard with my coaches all summer, ended up getting a scholarship off of my senior year. And then my junior year, they told me, like, hey, look, you have all the traits and the skills. If you work hard, you have a chance to get your college paid for. And I was like, oh, man, I really love this country. I can, I can go to college for free. So just that work I put in that summer and then end up playing my senior and getting a scholarship offer, going to the University of Central Florida, just the environment, the college environment for athletics is unbelievable. And keep in mind, this was three years after leaving Nigeria. So I was getting all these amazing experiences, made it so much easier for me to meet people and assimilate to the culture here. And it was just the next step, right? Going to the pros was just the next step in success. So if you were going to be successful as an athlete, the next step was to get to the NFL. For my family, going to college was just was good enough, right? They were done. They were like, okay, you come back home. <laughs> you, you're down with college. But I ended up going to Tampa with Tony Dungy, and that was um, life-changing. We had some amazing, amazing leaders. You know, we had Tony Dungy, Herm Edwards, Lovey Smith. All of those guys were on that staff. Amazing players with John Lynch, Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks. 
So um, my NFL experience wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to have so much more success. But when I look back at the, my NFL career, it was game changing for me. I met so many friends, so many relationships still today. I learned so much about professionalism. And when you're in the NFL, everything you do is about getting better. Every day you wake up is about getting better. The competitiveness is so high, right? It's such a competitive environment. The scrutiny is high. The attention to detail is high. Everything is, is black and white. There's no gray. Either you can do it or you can't do it, right? <laughs> right. So all of those things really helped me in life, just that experience in the NFL and just waking up every day locked in and getting better. When I left the NFL and came to the real world and I saw that, wow, everybody doesn't have that same approach to getting better every day. So, you know, I tell NFL guys today that we have so much of an advantage because of the environment we've been trained in. When we leave the NFL and transition, we have a leg up just because we've been exposed to so much pressure and we had to perform at the highest level under all of that pressure. So my experience was awesome. Like I said, I wanted to have a 10-year, $100 million career, but I couldn't put a price on what I learned in the time I spent in the NFL. That's amazing insight that you shared, just the, the competitiveness and then not uh, seeing that exact same drive when you when you left the NFL. But hey, six years, that's better than the average NFL player I know. So uh, So that's pretty darn good. Yeah, I get a retirement letter now. I get a, a pension letter, so <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that works. <laughs> <laughs> well, many successful leaders share this, the trait that we've been talking about, about the, the determination and unwillingness to give up and showing up every day. I know you've got a son that went to uh, high school here locally, grew up here locally, and is pursuing his own dreams in football, played at Alabama, I know, and uh, which, of course, is a powerhouse in football. How did you pass? Pass on. It's not just you, I'm sure, it's your wife, because I know she's also in athletics or had been in athletics in her collegiate career. How did how did you all pass on those traits to your son? I, and I ask because I've got a couple of kids and I'm sometimes not sure if I'm passing on some of those types of things as well as I could be. I want to learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, my son grew up here in Indianapolis. And um, we thank God so much just from just the environment and the amount of wonderful people in his life growing up. You know, you grow up here and you're exposed to um, so many, again, opportunities, right? So he played youth sports growing up. I can't imagine going back and not doing the same things, like never coming home after school, right? Because he had practice doing something. Playing AU basketball from second grade all the way through. Those experiences helped shape him as a young man, but also made our lives so much fun, right? You know, traveling the games and everything else. So my goal for him was never, hey, you got to make it to the NFL just because I knew how hard it is on your body as a whole. But he played youth sports. I coached youth sports, so he was always, always around. And my wife also was an athlete at North Central, played college basketball as well. So he was just exposed to sports. He fell in love with sports. He got his first scholarship offer from the University of Michigan, his freshman year at Cathedral. And I saw a change in his approach to just day-to-day, -day, right? He was so locked in on getting better as well. You know, you go through life as a dad and you just praying like your kids don't get in trouble and all those things. But football and sports kept him so busy because he wanted to be good at sports. When he got a scholarship offer, he wanted to be good at sports. He wanted to fulfill that, that dream of playing college football. So um, 
just watching him go through that, going to University of Alabama, started 42 games there, played in three national championships, won three SEC championships. So, you know, I'm a proud dad, obviously. <laughs> so right there and there, I was happy. I was like my parents. You know, my parents after college was like, come back to Nigeria. I told them, like, you know what? What an amazing, my American dream didn't even go this far, right? What an amazing career. What an amazing experience for us as parents to watch. For me, you know, I really wanted him from a professional career. One of the things you learn in the NFL that you go through is once the game is over, you start learning so much from scratch, right? Because all you've done is football. When I was done with football, I had to learn so much. Now, I had some skills. I had learned just playing on the team, but everything you do again is about football, about getting better. If you're not doing that, then you're not going to be there. So I wanted him to get a chance to get started in life earlier, doing some other things. But he was in love with football, still is in love in love with football. But just everything, those soft skills, the way you approach your day, the focus on getting better, the way you, you treat or work with other people as far as teammates are concerned, you learn all those things in sports, and I see that in him as well. So I keep telling him I can't wait till he transitions, whenever that is, because he's going to be such a great leader because I can just see those soft skills in him right now. That's awesome. It's clear that all the things that you've learned in life, in your wife, you're able to pass that down to him, and uh, that's that's what it's about. So that's fantastic. Your last stop in the NFL meal was with the Indianapolis Colts, but you lived in lots of different places. You lived in Florida, Atlanta, Oakland, California. What made you decide to build your life after football in Indiana? I think I know your wife's from here. <laughs> that probably played a role, but it didn't require you to have to stay in Indianapolis. Maybe you could tell us you know, what makes Indianapolis or what makes Indiana special, why you decided to build your life here. When I moved here, one of the people I knew was the late Congress Lady Carson. I remember I used to um, give her staff tickets to um, the Ravens games while I was in the NFL. So I knew her and she was really a good friend. And um, we used to always talk about just the opportunities in Indianapolis. And when I visited Indianapolis, I remember visiting probably the late 90s and I went to the Circuit City Classic game and there was 60,000 people in the stadiums and downtown was just packed and crowded. But you still couldn't find a good restaurant. And I was like, wow, all of these opportunities in this city, like there's so much opportunity. This city is such in this emphasis stage of growth. The communities were, were just friendly people. And I say people here don't do a lot of crazy things. People people do common sense things here, right? Um, people just don't cut off their nose despite their face in Indy, right? So I, we just felt like this was a good place to, to raise our family and um, get started professionally once we transition. Again, as an entrepreneur, you know, I just saw so many opportunities in this city. And once I retired, it was just an easy decision to make to, to, to move here and settle in. Yeah, well, we're glad you did. We're glad that you did decide to settle in. Let's take a quick break. This is Off the Record Podcast. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand Podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Off the Record Podcast. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, and I'm talking with Emil Ekior, CEO of InnoPower. 
We're always interested in learning, Emil, about how people included in our Indiana 250 list developed themselves and became leaders. We've talked a little bit about that. But as you look back at your career and how you developed as a leader, who are some of the people that might have had the biggest impact on you and your leadership development? I would say my dad. Growing up in in Nigeria, you know, um, there's no safety nets. You kill what you eat, you know. It's a day-to-day grind. And um, I just watched my dad day in and day out just grind to take care of us, right, to, to make sure we had everything we needed as a family. So just watching that, even though I left home at 15, I didn't know how much impact it had on me till I just started just doing things I saw him do, wake up and just go to church because he woke up and we all went to church on Sundays, you know. So those things just kind of stuck with me, but watching him just wake up every day and just, just grind to take care of all of us, intense, intense situations, right? So that was a huge influence on my life. When I came to the U.S., I had every ambition in the world. Like, there was no limit to what I wanted to do, right? Just because I felt like it was the U.S. You could do anything you want to do. Um, when I got here, I was embedded in a black community, and um, all of my friends were black because I just came from the largest population of blacks in the world. But I was amazed that um, a lot of my friends were not as excited about being here as I was coming here. And I didn't understand why partly because we didn't learn a lot about just the systemic issues here. We dealt with our own colonization in Nigeria. But as I learned and as I stayed here, what I found myself subconsciously was also having like a limit to what I can do. So I came here feeling I could do anything. But as I stayed here and continued to grow up here, I started questioning some things. Can I really do that? Can I really happen? I'm black. I can't do that. And that was really, really crazy to see happen. And I didn't even know it was happening until later on. I actually went back home to Nigeria. And when I went back and just got around people and just saw the grind and just the nature of living there and how everyone on a day-to-day basis is just working hard to make it. And people were like, hey, you know, you're in the U.S. and same approach. Like, just get me there, right? If I, if I could get there, <laughs> you know? So, and I was like, wow, you know what? How come I didn't even know I was thinking different? So here in the U.S., Tony and his staff, when I was in Tampa, they approached to um, build in Tampa. Because remember, when Tony was, when we got there, it was the orange uniform Tampa, right? right? I remember. I remember, right? (laughs) So it was a different culture. So they had to change that culture. I remember um, the facilities were so bad in Tampa when we got there. And a lot of the players just complained. We all like, man, this is terrible. Because we knew what other NFL teams had. I remember Tony saying, bringing a 45-pound weight to the room and saying, this 45-pound weight is the same 45-pound weight they have in San Francisco and New York. <laughs> if you lift it enough times, <laughs> you're going to get stronger and better, right? So he was saying that the facilities didn't matter. It was our approach to work every day, how we showed up, and the mindset we showed up with. And those kind of lessons, just watching him as a man come in and change the entire culture of our organization pretty much get everyone to believe that we can win. That influenced me so much, not at the time, but later on, just coming to work every day and seeing that approach. Everything was so consistent. Like we didn't do a lot of things different. Like when you came in, you were plugged in, you could come to work blindfolded. So seeing that was was amazing. The last person that really was later on in life once I moved to Indy was um, Dr. Eugene White. Former IPS yes, former superintendent. IPS superintendent. Dr. White was one of the most amazing men that I've been around as far as, um, again, consistency, his vision and his belief in what he wanted to see happen. 
the way he treated people on a daily basis, his honesty, the way he dressed every day, <laughs> all of those things as a young man, as you're trying to um, shape yourself professionally, um, it's amazing how you see other people and and they just have a, an impact in the way they say, like, you know what, if I had to do it, I, I want to do it that way. So I would say my dad, Tony, and his staff at Tampa, and then um, Dr. White really shaped my approach professionally, how I wake up every day professionally. Those are great insights and, and great people, and what an opportunity to learn from uh, some greats. So to stick on the leadership topic for a minute, in terms of what drives you as a leader today, are there core values that inform your leadership style and now play a part of your leadership and success? You know, I've always learned, well, sports also taught me this is, you win with people, right? You know, I've been on teams with great coaches, but we just have great players, right? And we didn't win. So you win with people and having great people. Great people do great things. So the way you treat people, the way you, you, you show your appreciation for people really matters if you're trying to do anything in life, I think. And it's so hard to make a difference in anything if you just don't have those kind of people with you. So really try to take pride. And I know in my life, I had people great in my life. So try to be great in other people's life, right? Just try to make sure that I see the good in people most of the time. And when I do, I try to point that out. But I try to surround myself with just good players. Like I want to win in everything I do. And I understand to do that. I just need good people around me. So recognizing that and, and finding and identifying talent and just sticking to that talent, right? I think is my approach. I can identify with that. I, I've uh, done my best to try to surround myself with uh, people here at the IBJ and beyond, and it, it makes all the difference in the world. Amen. You're, you're right. Well, moving on to what you're doing today, you founded InnoPower in 2019 and have served as a CEO from the beginning. What inspired you to found InnoPower? And, and tell us a little bit about InnoPower's mission and priorities. As we talked about everything, most people, your life experiences and environments shape who you are as a person, as a man in a lot of cases. Coming to the U.S., again, what I shared earlier, seeing so many people not excited about being here, coming here, just understanding there's so many opportunities here and seeing so many people come to this country to pursue opportunities. And then going on into the NFL, playing in the NFL, um, leaving the NFL, learning so many just unbelievable things in the NFL, staying in different communities and seeing that if you stayed in Tampa, if you stayed in Oakland, if you stayed in Orlando, you could almost take a lot of those black communities and just plug it in the same things. And it was so amazing to me that, you know what, so many people with so much talent. I've never met a person that said, a young person said, you know what, I don't want to make it. But how do you make it? So one of the things I shared is when I came here, um, I got plugged into this sports infrastructure, right? And I had some traits and some skills. And once I got plugged into it, I kind of just went through the process and made it to the NFL five years after coming from Nigeria, right? But if you're a young person and you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to be a tech executive, those same communities we talk about, you could walk into those communities and the young people could tell you the process to make it to the NFL. They could tell you the process to make it to the NBA. They could tell you the, the grade point averages they have to make, but they couldn't tell you, how do I become an entrepreneur? How do I become an executive? We felt like the infrastructure that's needed for you to plug in as a young person and just go through that process didn't exist. So many young people, and I say young people because I think if you're going to build anything, you start with the youth, right? Wake up every day and get on the bus, not feeling like opportunity exists. 
So how do we change that? How do we, one, understand and embrace that we do have a lot of opportunities in Indianapolis, so we make it local. But how do we get people to waking up every morning and feeling like opportunity exists for them as well? So we really felt like the, we've seen so many things happen. We've seen so many well-intended programs or initiatives, but we've seen so much come and go in my short time in Indy. To change things, we have to embrace innovation. We have to embrace the power of innovation. What does that look like in our communities here locally? And keep in mind, I've also seen things in Africa. When I left Nigeria, 25% of the homes had landlines. When I came back, 97% had smartphones. Yeah, isn't that amazing? They leapfrog. Oh, the skip beepers, the big phones, all of that, right? They went from no landlines to smartphones. It changed so much. People were leveraging technology to solve problems, creating adventures to do just that. And it's happened all over Africa today. But when I come here in the U.S., sometimes... Very well intended. Nobody wants to do anything bad, but we double down on ideas that we know don't work. So embracing that innovation and that concept of innovation, right? Being more risk averse in this community because you grew up, when you grow up in poverty, you don't take chances. You go the safe route, you go to college, get a job, work 30 years, retire. And in Indianapolis, that's kind of been the mode in our black communities, right? People just haven't taken chances. So the entrepreneurial mind to the entrepreneurial spirit that I think needs to be unleashed in this city, the way we embrace innovation, just think differently about how we solve problems, the way we come together to do it. And I've seen it happen in different areas, right? I've seen our downtown community just get built and continue to blossom and grow. So we can do it in this city, but we can't do it if we don't open the minds of people to think differently, right? So we started InnoPower in 2019, 2018, from aspect of how do we develop talent in a different way, right? Why do kids go to high school and have to take French for two years when they can just use their cell phones and right, <laughs> right, you know? Right. How do we do things differently to accelerate growth in our black communities? The key word is accelerate. Things are going to change. It's just going to take two generations if we don't change things. But the community and the community members, the energy has to come from them. I talk about the Dion effect quite a bit to people like Dion Sanders and. The energy he brings, and even though he's changed so much about college football, people are just so excited about his energy and and how positive it is. And we need that kind of energy today here in Indianapolis. But we're not going to get that energy if we do things the same old way. So InnoPower is the power of innovation. How do we solve problems to create opportunities in a different way? And when we say in our black community, we mean here in the U.S. and also sub-Saharan Africa. That's awesome. Awesome stuff. Staying on InnoPower, you started and InnoPower started a minority business week about five years ago that focuses on helping just what you talked about, helping minority entrepreneurs make the connections that will be helpful to their success, will help break down barriers. And this summer during the week-long event, that's turned into a week-long event, you had uh, Senator Todd Young and presidential candidate Tim Scott, I think, here in Indianapolis. Can you tell us more about that InnoPower Minority Business Week and uh, what you think has been achieved the last uh, five years or so? If anything is going to change, the energy has to come from the community, right? So we wanted to create a space that gave a platform to people to share their ideas. What needs to change? What would you do? So people like Angela Freeman, who you have on your podcast here. Yeah, absolutely. Angela has been a supporter from day one, and we've watched her grow professionally. But giving people a platform to share their ideas And we were amazed about how many black professionals or people that we felt like you, the VP of so, so, and so, so you have a platform, 
but they did not. So from day one, we just had this huge embrace of what we were doing. And um, we've just learned that the space we create to share ideas, ideas on how do we accelerate economic productivity in our black communities. So as we were doing that, we also saw that, you know what, we have some amazing young black professionals that to change the narrative around what exists, we need to showcase them more. So we started our Black Rising Stars, our Black Innovators Awards. We started our, our Black Excellence in Education Awards. Again, to just influence behavior, to change mindsets, to show that we have amazing professionals here in our city. And again, change the narrative from a narrative of the sky is falling to a narrative of opportunity. So the conference also creates the optics of Black Indianapolis that most people outside of our city don't know exist. People share with me, like, wow, you guys have the CEO of the United Way is a black man, yes. The CEO of LISC is a black man, yes. The city council president is a black man, yes. Most people outside of Indianapolis don't know that. So the objects we share, we also say, makes Indianapolis an attractive place for black professionals. So we are so excited about how the conference has grown from a two-day conference to a week of celebration, really, and showcasing the amazing talent we have here in Indy. So look for the IBJ joining us soon. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's exciting. So kind of staying on kind of how things are going in Indianapolis, as I touched on earlier, you've, you've lived in uh, lots of other cities. I'm sure you visit lots of other cities today. How do you think Indianapolis compares when it comes to supporting minorities and providing opportunities to succeed? How do we, how do we compare it to other cities and what more could we be doing? I know you're working on this, um, but, uh, and you maybe just touched a little bit on, on lifting people up and showing them opportunity versus, uh, you know, always focusing on the negative, but how do we compare and what could we more could we do? I think one of the advantages we have is we are really in our emphasis stages of growth. Some cities are just locked in, like it's going to be so hard to change things because things are just locked in. They've just passed that growth stage. So as we go through that stage of growth, certain things have happened in the city that kind of lock things in that we have to unlock. So one of the things I share is um, when we talk about black communities, we talk about when we talk about predominantly black communities, we really are talking about communities of low middle class and below. We talk about communities that most people there, the mindset is work hard and let me get out of here. So how do you rebuild or create economic productivity in communities that are losing so much talent on a daily basis? I tell people I know most, if not all black lawyers I know are doing really well. All black engineers I know are doing really well. All black doctors are doing really well. We just don't have enough. So how do we do that? How do we create that in Indy today? And we have some some really, really um, staggering numbers, right, as far as our achievement numbers. When we see so many, I think last I saw 80% or so black students are not reading a grade level in fourth grade. When we look at the number of black students that are going to college, 30% of kids are graduating in six years. So those are clear threats, not just to our black community, but to our city as a whole. So... And those are national numbers. Those things are all over the country. But we have an opportunity to change that here. We've built some things and maybe haven't executed it properly. But we have some things that we've created, some initiatives some um, that we have here in the city that the city has supported that we need to double down on better to create excitement with the people we created it for so they can access and take advantage of the things a lot more. Those are the things I see in India as far as we're so young, but we're not going to be young forever, right? 
Good points. And uh, I hope IBJ and our, our, our sister properties can help you uh, lift up those opportunities. One of them that I know, you, I think it started last year was a partnership with TechPoint to help Black Hoosiers in Indianapolis and beyond, I think even in Fort Wayne and Gary, launch tech careers. And you, you know, you, I, I just touch on the statistics a little bit. Uh, black workers comprise just seven percent, if my numbers are up to date, of the Indiana technology workforce. Although uh, blacks make up ten percent of Indiana's workforce, so underrepresented clearly in the technology area. Can you tell us more about the uh, partnership with TechPoint, the InnoPower has with TechPoint, and uh, the the effort to bring in more minorities into the tech sector? TechPoint launched the Mission Forty One K last year. The state has to create 41,000 net new tech jobs by 2030 to be competitive. So we love that. We love when people sell, set bold goals, right? We really do. So my conversation with Ting and Dennis were, well, how do we make sure that we don't look back in 2030 and we've only hired 400 African-Americans into the tech jobs? It's like, well, Emil, we want to make sure that doesn't happen. So the only way to find out how do we create an infrastructure that allows this thing to happen where we hire more people making money in a sector that we all have to understand and get into is to go and engage the communities, the people most affected, to find out what actually exists today. So we did those design sessions in Gary, Fort Wayne, and here in Indy, and we found out so much. One is, in our K-12 system, the way we teach computer science is, is not current. We're not preparing you to graduate from high school, and if you want to plug into an accelerated program, you can and finish in six months and get a certificate. So it doesn't prepare you for that. The traditional path to getting a tech job is go to Rose Home and go to Purdue, graduate and get you a tech job. Well, if we go down that path, we already know that we're going to miss the mark on, on hiring more minorities into the industry. So what does that look like starting from K-12? I think sometimes we, we focus so much on fixing adults, which we have to, but we can't just keep fixing adults forever. So Starting from K-12 and how we teach computer science and technology to students has to change. What are the pathways for adults? If you are a returning citizen and you want to get into tech, where do you plug in? If you're a mother who has been a social worker and you want to transition and make more money, where do you plug in? If you're a professional from Lilly's and you are just leaving a job there and you want to get into tech. So those are four different demographics within the black community, right? And four different pathways. Traditionally, we create a one-size-fits-all for everybody, and we missed the mark. So those design sessions allowed us to realize that. So I love working with Ting and Dennis because they also think the same way we think is, okay, how do we now bring our entire community together and understand who's doing what, right? So who fits into Ivy Tech because the resources exist at Ivy Tech? Who fits into 1150 Academy? Who fits into Hope Academy? Some community organizations are doing training. Who fits into that? How do we support our K-12 to make sure the curriculum is different? By doing those things and paying attention to those things now, we're almost ensuring that we're going to increase the numbers later on. If we don't do those things, then we just hope that that's going to happen. So those are the kind of opportunities we love in India and Indiana as a whole, that when you set a bold goal to say, we're going to create 41,000 net new jobs, and when you create something from now, you can make sure that you're creating it with an inclusive lens. Otherwise, 10 years from now, you'll be trying to retrofit people into what was created and wasn't created for them. 
And your point is uh, you can't keep doing the same thing that's produced the same results. Uh, and, and you've got to make changes to the educational system and, and how you're teaching, how you're reaching those young adults. And most people want to do that. Very few people don't want to do it. It's just hard. Exactly. Hard work. <laughs> but again, you surround yourself with good people. There are a lot, a lot of people way smarter than I am that know how to do that. We just have to open the space for them to come in to do that. Well, we've made it to off-the-record speed round. This is the fun part where I ask uh, our guests a series of questions in somewhat rapid form. So I'll, I'll start off and ask you what your favorite movie is. Godfather 1. Favorite place to vacation? I love Tampa. And Tampa's changed so much over the years. So I love going to Tampa. I love going downtown Tampa. And I just, I just have so many relationships there, so I love going to Tampa. Favorite musical artist? Growing up in Nigeria, we loved Michael Jackson, right? <laughs> and uh -huh. He's an Indiana guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just the influence he had on just pop culture as a whole. So every time I hear a Michael Jackson song, it just brings back so many memories growing up. So... um you know, I treasure some of those some of those songs. So I remember we used to have to sit down, like, because in Nigeria we only get like two or three hours of power a day. So anytime we had power, we would play Michael Jackson. Awesome. <laughs> What's the first thing you do in the morning? So I read my devotional every morning. Now I have to make sure you know I'm older now, so I have to get an elliptical as well and get some get some cardio in. So those two things happen every morning. Then I see my wife. Title of the last book or your favorite book? Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Ooh, I want to learn about that one. <laughs> what food that you can't live without? I love plantains. Best advice you ever received? Don't focus on the obligation, focus on the opportunity. Advice for a young person who wants to develop into a leader? Most leaders have, I've met are doers, right? They don't shy away from things, they do things, right? A lot of young people I meet today, the first thing I ask is, what have you done? Be a doer, right? Um, be someone who, at the end of the day, when you sit down and talk to people, show that you've done something, right? So that's the biggest advice. Don't, don't do things only because they may or may not advance your career. I always ask our guests, Michael Jordan or LeBron James, but I, I, maybe I should ask you Peyton Manning or Tom Brady. Ooh. So I'm a Peyton fan. I, I had a chance to see Peyton like firsthand his first year. Because Peyton is a different person. I've not had a chance to be around Tom, so I couldn't tell you. I've just read so much about him. But Peyton is, um, like, I haven't met too many people like him in my life. He's, he's just a different, different guy. Toughest player you played against in the NFL? One of my best friends in life is Tyreek Glenn. I knew Tyreek before coming to Colts, so we, we went against each other in practice. And Tyreek jumped offside so much, right? He never admitted it. So it was so hard to beat him because he was jumping off the ball. He always got to start on <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, he start. <laughs> so, but Tyreek was a, also just a freak of nature. He was a big, strong, athletic guy, smart. So as an offensive tackle, as a defensive end, it was hard going against him because he, he was just a different, different kind of athlete. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining me on Off the Record Podcast. And thank you for all you're doing in our city and our state. Thanks, Emil. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you so much. Thanks to Emil Ekior, CEO of InnoPower, for our conversation today. To learn more about other leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list, go to indiana250.com and look for a page two feature each week in IBJ. We'll be back with a new Indiana 250 conversation soon. 